0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have an interesting founder. I mean, I think that we're going to learn a lot. He's a born and raised in San Francisco. I mean, typically the people that you speak with, you know, there are people that, that ended up in San Francisco somehow, but he's definitely, you know, one of those one-of-a-kind that has been there since the beginning. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Derek Steer. Welcome to the show.
1: Alejandro, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. am excited.
0: So how was life growing up there in San Francisco?
1: Probably it's I mean it's the same as uh anywhere, you know, if you if you got a living room and a kitchen, that's that's pretty much my whole life, you know. Sometimes I take uh vacations to my backyard, but uh I would say all <laughs> in all it's, it's quite good. I'm I'm an optimist, I think probably a lot of founders classify themselves as optimists. Right. Uh so yeah, I'm I I'm generally Happy to have my health and and you know be able to at least work every day on something i'm excited about
0: absolutely and obviously uh, growing up you know you 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 grew up in in a family that that were a little bit more traditional, not so much on the techie and and you know ambitious or or maybe like changing the world type of mindset uh, but but how was life growing up you know your father was was a lawyer for example
1: yeah he i mean my my dad is a first generation American, came from a, you know, immigrant family that had to flee Romania during World War II to avoid persecution. And to him, economic stability was the thing, and so he had always sort of drilled into me like, okay, you're going to go become a lawyer, doctor, banker, just some like real uh traditional profession guaranteed to make a bunch of money and be financially stable because I think that was a thing he grew up without. Um, and wanted from me. So uh, a lot of my, the, the nudges from my parents, um, and, and I think a, a lot of my education and my friends and everything kind of were pushing me in that direction. And it was really by accident that I fell into tech, like graduating from college. If you told me that I was going to work in tech, I would have been surprised. And if you told me that I was going to be a tech CEO, I, I probably would have laughed in your face.
0: Very cool. So then, so then in this case, you actually, when you were in high school, you fell in love with economics. So, what was about economics that really that really captured you?
1: It was the way of thinking, uh, thinking about things in terms of scarcity and trade offs that really appealed to me. Um, I happened to have a really great economics teacher in high school. I went to Lowell High School in San Francisco, um, and my teacher Jim Spellesey, uh, was one of the writers for the AP Econ exams. He was a he was a Reasonably well-known teacher nationally, as much as you can be as a high school teacher. Um, so, so he was just fantastic and really made the difference for me and kind of showed me like that 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 I you know am, am meant to do economics or or something like it. So I went um, I went off to college. I went to Occidental College where I majored in econ. And then my first job after that was in economic consulting, uh, doing analysis for antitrust cases and and big mergers. So really follow that thread for probably 10, 11 years.
0: So then what happened after college? What did you do?
1: So, so I worked at this consulting firm and, and we, we were primarily working on data from the biggest companies to understand whether their mergers or competitive activity was going to result in some ability to price unfairly. And you know these were tech companies, CPG firms. I can't talk about most of the cases unfortunately because it's all confidential. But um, but I got to see and work with data from the companies that were most interesting to me, and and I, l- I learned a bunch of things, uh, including that uh, a lot of these companies have bad data. Like I I, I previously believed that uh, the biggest companies in the world must be big because they're you know they've got all of it together, right? Like it, if you're very successful, it means that you operated better than anyone else. Um and i know I now know that not to be exactly right, uh, but but it was an interesting discovery at the time. Oh, I was going to say, like like any consulting job, I think there are there there's a traditional kind of analyst or or associate type of path where you do that for a few years. You go off to some kind of grad school and then you come back, or maybe you don't come back, and that was very much the the path I saw myself on where I I thought I was going to go to business school and then do some different flavor of consulting or, or go into something adjacent. Instead, I took a break for half a year, rode my bike across the country, uh, discovered myself, all that, you know, uh, it was something I had always wanted to do.
0: I want to kick but, but, back. but 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 hold on, Derek. What what do you mean? Everyone you know gets to do? I mean, not a lot of people get to ride a bike and go across the country. So what what was this about? Tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, this is quite unique.
1: Oh, sorry. No, it's not. Not not like everyone gets to do. I mean, the the I think the in the you know, in the consulting world, you know, like there's, there's this sort of expectation that you move on and do something else after a while. And and for me, I, I, I do think I did something that was a little bit non-traditional, which is I just, I just took a, a break and, and went and rode my bike. Um, I, I just have been in love with cycling. There was a period in my life where I was riding, you know, 250, 300 miles a week. Uh, it's all I wanted to do. And, and for the longest time, I think any serious cyclist, you know, so, so I'm, I'm like many of the others, uh, Every serious cyclist in the U.S. has that idea of biking across the country in the back of their heads, and I figured, you know, I'm kind of over this consulting job. When, if not now, when? You know, maybe later I'm going to have a family. I should probably go and do it, and so I, I did. I, I raised some money for uh, World Bicycle Relief, which is a charity that that you know provides bicycles to to children in a number of countries in Africa, just to get them set up with basic transportation, and you know, it was, it was partially for that and partially just, you know, so I could go and cruise the back roads of the United States and and see what there is to see.
0: And for how long did you do that?
1: Uh, it took about three months. I did it with one other guy. So one of my childhood best friends, um, I was able to convince him to come with me, but it was really just the two of us. We organized it ourselves. We went without any support from anyone else. We brought all of our gear with us in in trailers attached to our bicycles and I mean, we could do a whole podcast about that I, th- this the people we met on this trip there's something about traveling outside of a car that's very different where you know a road trip in a car you're on the freeway and you pass by all the interesting stuff. The cool things are all on the back roads, so we that that was what we did we whenever possible were taking these roads that almost no one else was on, you know, stopping for lunch in a trailer by the side of the road, meeting the locals that That's something that I'm. I'm super happy to have done. I don't think I'd be able to do it today, you know, with my, with my family and my job. But absolutely, experience of a lifetime for sure.
0: So, so I guess for you, what did you discover about yourself?
1: Uh, I've got to think about it for a moment. Beyond just the enjoyment of of doing it, I think the the thing that I discovered about myself that I might not have come across otherwise is that it's okay to do things outside of the path that my that my parents or my education had set forth for me. That probably was the biggest thing is I went off and did this ride, had a lot of fun, and then came back and fell back into work in in a way that probably worked out better than if I had just sat at home and applied for jobs. So I think in... Through the rest of my career, I've taken a number of risks. And I'm fortunate that they've paid off. I think I've been able to at least figure out which risks are the right risks to take. Going on this trip was a risk for me, and seeing that result in something that's maybe better than if I hadn't done it, plus I got to have a lot of fun. That certainly, to some degree, whether I realized it at the time or not, has informed. Uh, A number of my decisions later.
0: And obviously, um, a big one there was uh, heading into tech. So, you that 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 started with Facebook.
1: Yeah. So, so I had kind of a funny uh, path into Facebook where, you know, in 2010, I had just come back from this bike trip and one of my former colleagues from the consulting firm was at Facebook and said, Derek, you got to come check this place out. Like, they're just doing such interesting stuff. It's, it's way ahead of, any other company in terms of like the analysis that they're doing but, but they don't have enough people they need more smart analytical people so come join. And I really thought I was going to go to business school. So I so I said to him, "Yeah, I'm I'm interested and, you know, I'll I'll think about it, but really what would make me feel best is if I were to to come in as like a consultant. You know, I I don't know that I want to take a full-time job because I am a, intending to apply to business school. Um, and in fact, I I did applied to business school within my first month at Facebook. So so I came in as a as a contractor working pretty much full-time, uh, but with the intention of doing a short turn and then heading out. What I realized partway through was business school probably is the wrong decision for me. Like, post-business school, what do I want to do? Well, this Facebook job is pretty fun, and the people here are really smart. I'd probably just want to come back here or to a company like this. So seems like very little point in, you know, spending a couple hundred grand to go to school for two years, only to just wind up in the
0: same place. Absolutely. So then obviously, you know, here in, in Facebook, I mean, you were there for about eight months, but that got you into probably what has been the, one of the biggest life-changing moments in your professional career, Yammer. So here you had the opportunity to really see a company going from nothing to like all these employees and being acquired by Microsoft. So I'm sure that was quite a while ride for you.
1: Yeah. and To be clear, Yammer wasn't at nothing when I arrived. There, there was certainly a little bit of buzz and, and press about it. I was maybe the 150th employee.
0: Yeah. But, but then, I mean, the acquisition was massive, incredible growth. I mean, you get to, you 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 had the opportunity to experience all of that. So how was that for you?
1: Yeah, I think when I look back, you know, when I'm really old, I, I'll probably think of Yammer as the real turning point in my career. Um, for a couple reasons, the first is that I had a lot of agency, way more than I had had at any other job. So, um, so I came in. Well, well, first the story of of how I ended up there. You know, once I once I realized that business school wasn't for me, I started thinking more broadly about what was. And one of the things that really bugged me about Facebook at the time is that all of the internal work was done over email. So, you know, now they have Facebook groups, uh, or, or work workplace, or, uh, you know, I think it's evolved over time, but, but at that time I was living in outlook all day, which seems like a total waste. And so I, I specifically sought out Yammer as the company that was applying the the principles of open communication to work. Uh, I really believed in that. And and I just happened to luck into working for a guy named Pete Fishman, who, you know, since, since then officiated my wedding, uh, you know, he's an investor in mode. I'm an investor in his new company, Mozart data. Um, we become super close. And, and I think that's, if there is a consistent theme, even though my various career transitions have been, uh, kind of big tangential leaps from one another, uh, for the most part, the consistent thing is that I've been able to find really great mentors, uh, and, and, and great people to work with along the way. And so he was really a big part of that transition to Yammer for me. So so he gave me a lot of autonomy and, and basically said, Derek, you can go do the things that you think are valuable. Just don't screw them up, right? Like they just need to actually be valuable. And, and it taught me some of the most important skills that, that today I employ as a founder of just figuring out what is valuable and prioritizing it and then making sure that you get it done.
0: So then, in this case, I mean obviously, after the acquisition, you had the opportunity there to work with Microsoft a little bit as well and and it was a very important moment in time where you got together with your colleagues and uh, during a brainstorming session you know there was an idea that came up that uh, that basically changed everything for
1: you well, it wasn't that there was one brainstorm per se it's just that we we started to chat at lunch, which turned into chatting in the mornings and then thinking about what it would be like to build a business around these tools. We just kept talking about it more and more every day. And you know what I, what I tell aspiring founders is, start a company that you're obsessed with. That's really the most important thing because if it's just another job, you're not gonna make it. It's, it's hard, it's really hard. You face challenges at every single step you know once you overcome those challenges the goals become higher and more challenges get introduced and for us we really were totally obsessed the reason that we started mode was because we were obsessed with sol- solving this particular problem of how analysts and data scientists collaborate amongst each other and with the rest of the business and I, i'm i don't think i will ever start another business unless I feel that exact same way where I wake up in the morning and it's the first thing I think about. And I go to bed at night thinking about that as well. Mm.
0: Interesting. So then, so then obviously here, you guys are still in a, in this company, you know, big company, obviously now Microsoft. And, and how do you get it to the point where, okay, let's, let's, let's give our notice. We, we got to go on this.
1: It was really just the amount of time that we were spending talking about it amongst ourselves in conference rooms, you know, instead of, instead of actually going out and, and doing our day jobs. Uh, there, there became a point where our day jobs just became completely unpalatable. And it's not Microsoft's fault. I think a lot of people assume, oh, you got acquired by Microsoft and so you hated it and you had to go. And no, it wasn't that at all. It was really more that we were just obsessed with this one particular thing and, and wanted to go do it.
0: Got it. So then what were some of the first steps that you took when you actually went at it and and you did it?
1: Yeah. So one of the important things here was that we wanted to create legally a clean separation from Microsoft because they owned all of the internal tools that we had built. So we had to, you know, we couldn't borrow any code from them. We couldn't do, so we had to make sure, you know, we're not doing any work ahead of time. We had to, we had to create, create a really clean separation between the two. So, um, we decided we were going to give notice. We all gave notice on the same day. There were three of us: uh, myself, my colleagues Ben Stansel and Josh Ferguson, who are the two other founders of Mode. And we, as soon as we gave notice, uh, went to talk to David Sachs, Yammer CEO, to get his feedback on the business and also to see if he wanted to fund us. And you know, one of the one of the great things about working at a company like Yammer that that is successful is The connection to the venture community and and the ability to raise money is really, really, really strong. Like, we were able to raise from our executives, David Sachs, and a number of other early Yammer executives, uh, one of whom was uh, David Obrand, Yammer's chief customer officer. Um, He, after a few years and a couple of other jobs, uh, went to become a partner at Valor Equity Partners, where he did Mode Series C. So, you know, the, the earliest investors have carried through all the way to, to present day. And and David is uh, really, David O'Brien is really active in the company today.
0: Very cool. That's, I mean, that's amazing because David Sachs is a super uh, well-known now angel investor. I mean, he's done a lot of this. So it was like you were falling into the the right place.
1: Yeah. His portfolio is outstanding. But more than that, you know, he's well-connected himself and also able to tell people about the work that we've done from direct experience, which I think is the important part. Like the real value came in, not when, not when David invested in Mode, but in this, the next round after that, where when we went out to meet other investors, it came with an introduction from David Sachs saying, these folks built really valuable stuff at Yammer. I funded them right when they left the company to go and do their next thing. This is going to be a winner. Trust me. And yeah, I mean that that advantage, I don't know that there's another way to replicate that other other than, you know, going and working at a, a similarly successful company and getting to know the founders. Like the the referenceability there is is really huge. Much more than, you know, if I were to just go out and, and pitch and say, Hey, I've got Yammer on my resume, right? The the difference between having Yammer on my resume and having the CEO of Yammer directly invested in the company is it's big
0: well, absolutely, because uh, early stage uh, fundraising and early stage investing is all about social proof, and I think that this is a clear example of the difference between an active investor and a passive investor is is really that signaling tool that you can get from it yeah
1: i I feel a little bit maybe maybe guilty is the wrong word, but I'm certainly aware of the advantage that that gave us, and i you know for the sake of the the global economy and the future of Silicon Valley. I hope that we're able to find other ways to fund emerging founders, right? There are lots of people with great ideas and the ability to execute who just aren't part of the system today. And it's so much harder for them to get started. Um, I love Y Combinator, uh, at least in concept. I, I haven't done it myself, I can't really speak to it in depth, but. You know any opportunity to take someone from the middle of the country or really just outside the Silicon Valley boys club and and insert them into it. I may, maybe later in my career I'll get more directly involved in in helping founders outside of of these circles because I'm by being in them I'm acutely aware of how advantageous that is.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so Derek, for the folks that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of mode?
1: So, mode competes in a very interesting way. And our business model has to reflect that. And it took us a while to figure this out. At its core, mode is a workflow tool. And, and, you know, in the data world, people get really excited about data processing and technology. Mode is less like a database like Snowflake, right? the performance elements of it are less important than the workflow and and the way in which people get things done, the way they share with one another. That's the stuff that makes mode really special. What we do is we take the work that analysts and data scientists were doing in their Python notebooks, their SQL editors, and we bring that into the cloud, make it really easily shareable and distributable and reusable. It's very similar to what Google Suite does relative to Microsoft Word, right? They took interfaces that people understood already and just put them in the cloud, added really great permissions and sharing models to them, connected them well to each other, and in doing so, provided a lot of value. That's the general principle behind how Mode provides value to analysts and data scientists. So the idea is let's get you out of your desktop tools working in the cloud. From there, what happens is that they start to share with everyone else in their company. So a successful mode deployment, depending on the size of your company, might have thousands of people. Like Our biggest customers are 5,000 plus people using mode with thousands daily active, like really high engagement across a group that's far beyond analysts and data scientists. And the thing that's challenging for us about that is that companies then start to view us in the same light as Tableau and Looker and other traditional business intelligence tools. So we've got to... Uh, we've got to then compete for dollars and share of eyeballs with the business intelligence world, not just with other things that are aimed at analysts and data scientists. And for that reason, you know the the way that we've the way that we've thought about going to market it has evolved quite a bit over time. But it really is about uh, landing among the analysts and data scientists regardless of what other competitive tools are in place we just want to get in get our foot in the door expanding organically through product-led growth and then developing relationships with the broader business and expanding from there
0: and and then how do
1: you make money there we make money on a per seat basis so the value comes back to us when and that's part of getting in you know uh getting in small, right? It, it's affordable for companies to start with just a department or just the analysts or data scientists, because we're charging them only for a few seats. And then as Mode starts to grow within the company and provide value, you know, the, the value that people experience from Mode really does track pretty well with the number of people who are using it. So that seat-based model is, is a good proxy for value.
0: Got it. So then, in in this case, how did you guys, you know, like obviously this this requires some money. So how much capital have you guys raised today?
1: About eighty three million to date. We just did a thirty three million dollar round led by HIG Growth.
0: So then let's talk about that because pitching in COVID, especially your last pitch was here or your first pitch was in March. I'm sure that was quite bumpy to say the least.
1: Um, it was you know, uh, it was an interesting moment. I I. I, I... <laughs> I've I've thought about it a lot since then. Um so we had just happened to budget in a way that dictated a fundraise at about that time. So, you know, it wasn't that we screwed up or anything. It was just really bad luck that COVID hit and the economy started tanking right at the time when we needed to go raise money. So, there was no choice really. It was just we got to go do it and you know, deal with it the, the way that it was going to happen. And what I said to the exec team, and, and actually, we're pretty transparent with with fundraising and that kind of thing. So what I said to the whole company was, we should still be able to get a round done. I just think I'm going to have to talk to three times as many people as usual. Are, where a, t- a typical funding round for us, we've we've had pretty competitive rounds, and usually I've talked to maybe you know ten VCs and and gotten one or two term sheets. Um, most most of our rounds have have been competitive. So I figured. This time probably have to talk to thirty people, and we'll get a term sheet out of it. And it it shook out to be roughly that. Uh, although you know, with with the HIG folks, when when we first started talking, it was a pretty it was a pretty direct path from there to a deal. Um, it was clear from from the beginning that they were really serious about mode. And uh, I think in this environment, you know, some investors were just spooked by the fact that the stock market was dropping 10 points a day. That seems like a a big problem. And so in some cases, I would reach out and people would say like, hey, we're just not even interested in anything at the moment, right? Like unless, unless you're like the greatest company to have ever existed, we're probably just not even the right people to talk to because we're turtling up and seeing how this shakes out. I think even a month later, things had had changed enough that, uh, that those same firms probably became much more active, but it just happened that, you know, at the end of March and the beginning of April, people were the most freaked out. So once we got past those people, really, it was folks who, uh, what we were doing was looking for folks who believed in our market, and in particular, in the analyst data science portion of it. Like, to bet on mode, what you really need to believe is that analysts and data scientists are a growing audience both in number and in importance, and that those people will come to make decisions about how companies use data on behalf of a very big group of people at the company. That's what we believe at the core, is that that group is going to be decision makers and really important. They're going to hold their own budget. You see this happening in a number of big companies already where data has moved to a strategic function out of IT, right? It used to be just like buried in IT. Now data is, you know, for media companies, it's a monetization strategy.
0: For For
1: others, it's something that is directly in lines of business. I mean, the data science team at Twitch, who was our first customer, lives under marketing. It's totally different from the way the world was 10 years ago. So as far as fundraising, fundraising is concerned, it's not too hard to convince people that that's going to be the case, um, and that I think really is what it comes down to.
0: And you know, obviously, this uh, this reminds me of because obviously, this is just one more problem you know that you encounter in your entrepreneurial journey. But I think that you know, one one of the things that, that that you guys had, and 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 this is definitely an edge, is the access to data and and being able to interpret and to understand and digest data in a way in which you know few people can. Uh, because that's really the background that you guys that you guys had, no. But but one question that I want to ask you here is, how do you guys go about really using you know perhaps metrics to break down a given problem and perhaps use that data to guide you in making the right decisions?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting thing for us. Um, you know, we as analysts and data scientists, the founding team of Mode is excellent at breaking problems down, at, at finding the meaty, kind of tricky questions, dissecting them into their parts, measuring all the pieces, and, and figuring out what we should do. So uh, I gave a talk at Web Summit last year uh, that, that you can go and find online, or, or maybe we can put in the, in the notes on the podcast, that is a kind of 10-minute overview of how we applied analytical decision-making to becoming freemium and to pricing decisions. It it feels I mean to go all the way back to what we were talking about at the beginning here, uh, it really it is the same skill set that I was honing in high school in economics of just, you know, logically breaking down a problem into its component parts and 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 trying to solve it. Um, thinking about things in terms of trade-offs. The thing that we're that we're surprisingly uh, immature at, though, though getting better, um, is I think what a lot of people think about when they say being data-driven, which is really just adhering to metrics on a dashboard. Like they, For a sales team, for example, a, a data-driven sales team is is more like a metrics-driven sales team, right? It's not necessarily one that uses data to make every decision. It's one that reviews data about activity and and drives the operations of the business based on that that's something that data science teams don't really do. Like there's not a good way to measure them. Number of questions answered, number of lines of code written. Like these are not things that really perfectly align to the value that those teams provide. So what happens in most companies is they just ignore it. Right? They 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 just say like, well, we'll decide if that team is performing well based on how we feel about them. And and that's how I had been managed in the past. And so, you know, Mode's founding team has had to develop this muscle and we've done okay at it, but it's definitely not the same as coming from a career in a field like sales or marketing where the metrics are super clear and, and that's just part of how you do things is, you know, you think about the metrics of the business all the time and, and how you're tracking toward them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so one of the things that I want to ask you, and this obviously goes to, to really for the people here that are that are following us today here, is how how big, what can you tell us about how big is Mode today? How big is Mode today? Yeah. How many employees uh, do you guys have or, or anything along the lines to get an understanding on, on basically the scope of, of Mode today?
1: Yeah. Um, so we're 110 employees or so. Uh, we... Just did our Series D fundraise. Um, in terms of, you know, customers, we are north of north of five hundred. I believe is the official metric that we've got out there in the press. Uh, so, so the next big one will be, uh, will be thousand. Uh, I think that covers the kind of the kind of the basics um, in terms of in terms of how big we are. The things that are important to me are a little different than those metrics. Um, what matters to me is that analysts and data scientists have heard of us. So we've got this uh, tutorial that that is probably the best brand builder for us. That gets hundreds of thousands of unique visitors every month, and and that to me is is one of the most important things. So just like how many people are getting exposed to the mode brand and who we are, what we what we do, and and you know what what kind of audience we are trying to reach.
0: So one of the, one of the questions that I that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is if you had the opportunity to go back in time you know maybe maybe you're able to go back to and 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 participate on those discussions with your younger self and and with other colleagues you know that you were chatting there and and brainstorming at Yammer with and you're able to just just put yourself inside of that conversation and 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 give at least yourself and obviously you know share as well with, with others that they are listening Uh, one piece of advice before launching a business and why, especially given now, you know, you know, having built mode for all these years, what would that be?
1: So I already mentioned that, uh, being obsessed with, with the thing that you're doing is really important. I think that is the most important thing. Um, but maybe is tied with make sure the thing you're doing is, is valuable (laughs) at least to somebody. And if you're going for venture scale, then make sure it's a thing with a big enough market or at least can grow that way. We did very little to understand the market when we first started the company. And that's a thing that I really wish we had done more of. We just sort of said, hey, we are the audience. We know what to build. Everyone else who says anything different, it's because they don't know. But we know. We're, we just thought we were smarter than everyone else. And you know, in some ways, you have to think that in order to start a business. Because most startups fail you've got to believe that you're in like the top 1% to even bother trying in the first place. And I don't think we explicitly said to ourselves we're in the top 1%, but by virtue of starting this business, like that's implied. So what we should have done, I think, is to to approach it with a little more humility from the start and really do better customer development, better market development. You know, in the early days when we, would, when we would pitch investors, most of them said to us, how many people write SQL? Like, you're making a product for a technical audience? Why? That seems small, right? Everyone else in the BI world is going after the non-technical people because there's so many more of them. And you're saying that, like, there's enough of these technical people to go venture scale? That seems suspect. And we didn't have a really good answer for them at the time. The answer now is, yeah, it's happening. You can see, right? There are so many proof points from you know, the number of data scientists in, entering the market every year to other market expanding things like Redshift, BigQuery, and Snowflake, which, which have really made it possible to do analysis and, and you know, get, a, get a good ROI on building a analytics or data science capability within an individual department at a company or in a very small startup. So these things have really led to uh, a clear market opportunity. But in the early days, we probably should have just thought more carefully about what that opportunity was. I think it would have saved us a year
0: in development. I love it. I love it. So Derek, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Best way to say hi to me? Uh, So my email is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at modeanalytics.com. That's the best way. I'm, I'm kind of off and on on Twitter and everything else. But, you know, generally, if people have questions, I'm pretty open to chat, especially with aspiring founders. So, yeah, uh, happy, happy to pass on learnings or answer questions uh, wherever I can.
0: Amazing. Well, Derek, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Alejandro, thanks for
1: having me. This was fun.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com